0: The views, comments, stories, and opinions within this podcast are my own, or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. Squawk Eye Den is an entertainment podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is Episode 9 of Squawk Ident, recorded on Monday, the 11th of November, 2019, from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, we will discuss an incident that occurred today at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport when an Envoy Air Incorporated MBR 145 in the American Eagle livery slid off the runway after landing in a winter weather event. We also look at recurrent training for airline pilots, what is involved, and is it really where pilots go to get beaded repeatedly until they get it right we also are introducing a new segment to the show where aviator tony reviews a classic film about airplanes all that and more on this episode of squawk ident so sit back relax and enjoy the show and now here's our host aviator tony Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank again Captain Roger from Episode 8. It was a wonderful interview with a pilot who has had his own unique set of hurdles to overcome in this path to a career in aviation. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to check it out. It was a pretty exciting interview to conduct, and I hope you enjoyed it so let's move on i want to talk a little bit about flying the line last week Uh, we didn't get a chance to go over some of the normal segments so just a quick recap Uh, actually a week ago today i was able to fly a two-day trip that i picked up uh, because i had a very long stint in my schedule of days off in the middle of the month and so I had an opportunity to pick up a two-day trip that was really nice, and I did. It was a L.A. to Lahui and back that uh, was a nice day trip flying out and a day trip flying back. So as I mentioned in previous episodes, that's always a, a good opportunity to, to do some flying that normally I wouldn't get because of my seniority. So uh, that trip was nice. It was relatively uneventful. I've talked about that uh, flying before. So I'm not going to bore you with too much of the details. But one thing did happen that stood out. So we're climbing out out of Los Angeles and we're doing the uh, oceanic tracks. And on this particular flight, the dispatcher had filed us over a more northern track. Now, if you haven't heard the term before, tracks are basically kind of like freeways in the sky. So if you look at a aeronautical chart that extends from Hawaii to the west coast of the United States, you're going to see that there's some Hawaiian route tracks that take you over to the islands. Now, the aircraft that are flying over, as I mentioned uh, in a previous episode, they're not under radar contact because there are no radar facilities over the water. So you're going over a planned route and you have to stay within five nautical miles of either side of this track and you need to make position reports on a regular basis and it's all timed out so that no two aircraft are at the same altitude at the same place at any given time. So it's important that you are following this you know freeway of the sky. These tracks uh, go as far south as somewhere around San Diego to their starting point and as far north as a beam of San Francisco. So it just depends on which track you have planned to fly over on. And it's dependent on weather, on wind currents. So your dispatcher may have you fly from Los Angeles up the west coast towards Oakland or San Francisco before you turn left and head uh, west over the Pacific on your track over to one of the Hawaiian islands. And this is exactly what happened on this particular day. And we, the captain and I discussed it uh, on our pre-flight briefing on what the plan was. We also talked about it a little bit in operations before the flight uh, when we were reviewing some of the paperwork together. And we, as I mentioned, we were... Uh, departing, we're flying out. And about 20 minutes into the flight, as we're kind of hugging the coast of uh, California, uh, before we made our turn to head west, we got a call from the cabin. And the number one flight attendant said, uh, Captain, there's a passenger back here that is tracking us on their phone uh, with some. Uh, like air tracker uh, software and they're saying we're going way too far north are we going the right direction and we both looked at each other like um seriously they're they're tracking the flight on because they what have wi-fi or something so you know we we kind of looked at each other for a minute and, and the captain said, "Well, okay, well, I'll, I'll make a PA. It's fine. So what ended up happening, we figured out that since we were hugging the coast, we still had Wi-Fi because over the water, uh, unfortunately, our aircraft at Legacy Airlines uh, don't have satellite style Wi-Fi. So we lose the ability to stream on the Internet for our passengers. But because we were taking this northern track, we were able to maintain Wi-Fi connection much longer than usual. And this passenger in particular must have been tracking the flight with whatever software or app they were using. So, you know, the captain said, well, okay, I better make a PA because people are going to get nervous, whatever. So he went and... uh, you know, was off the comms, he went back to make the PA, and, and he said something to the effect of, well, ladies and gentlemen, it's come to my attention that one of our passengers uh, is tracking the flight and was concerned that we were flying a little bit uh, more north than usual. And this is actually a very true statement. Uh, we were filed to fly on a track to go over to Hawaii that is much... Uh, farther north than normal. So we're actually flying northbound towards Oakland before we make our turn and head towards the Hawaiian island of Lahui uh, or the, the uh, Kauai uh, to the airport in Lahui. So this is because of the higher winds that were. Uh, on the more direct track that's right out of Los Angeles. So it actually saves us time by flying northbound for about 30 minutes before we turn in. And we'll be making that turn here in about 10 minutes. So uh, nothing to worry about. We are actually flying in the correct direction. And that, that was the PA. And I stopped for a moment, and I thought about it, and I... And when he came back and, you know, I told him, okay, there's been no changes on the radio or anything. Uh, he kind of, he looked a little annoyed, but not to the point where, like, he was upset or anything. But I said, man, talk about a change in the atmosphere from even 10 years ago. And he looked at me and was like, what? I said, you know, 10 years ago, tracking something on a, app, your flight path over a uh, satellite image, a mapping system on your phone that's in your pocket. Uh, that's crazy. You know, and then now we have to explain what we're doing. I mean, uh, okay. You know, he, he agreed. He's, you know, we had a little, just a little bit of a discussion there and, and then we moved on. It was, it's not a big deal, but uh, it kind of, Shocking. Remind me of another time when uh, years back I was in Chicago and it was snowing. And uh, every year the FAA releases a a de icing holdover time uh, card. And it's a a non specific uh, de icing chart that tells you, depending upon uh, what the conditions are, how long. The fluid, the de icing fluid on your aircraft is valid for or effective uh, for. And every year they come up with revised uh, definitions and revised holdover times. And what a holdover time is, for those of you that haven't heard these kind of terms before, is so if it's snowing out there, there's, there's two types of de icing fluid that we generally use in the airline world. Uh, one is called deicing. And the other is anti-icing. Now, the de-icing fluid is usually clear. So if you're in the back of the airplane and you're at the gate and they're they're de-icing the airplane, it's usually it's not snowing or there are no um, meteorological conditions that have active um, precipitation. So if that's the case, they're going to spray you down with a solution that removes any frozen particles from your wings. Uh, Or fuselage. Now, if it is snowing, then they apply something called type 4 fluid. Well, at least in the United States, uh, the primarily use type 4 fluid. Now, type 4 fluid is usually green in color. Uh, That's a color that they add to it so that you can just look at the airplane and know, okay, the aircraft has been sprayed with type 4 fluid. And type 4 fluid uh, actually used to be a primarily glycol or an alcohol-type uh, chemical. So what would happen is as the snow fell or the freezing precipitation of any kind fell on the aircraft, it would melt off chemically. And, of course, that would last a different amount of time dependent upon both temperature and type of precipitation. So if it's something like light snow, your holdover time, which is the time that you can uh, be in the elements and take off without having any accumulation of freezing uh, particles landing on your aircraft and sticking. Uh, that holdover time is much longer with light snow. But if you have something like freezing fog or freezing rain or anything like that, your holdover time is much less. And every year the FAA comes out with a new chart that's been revised. And I can remember one time uh, we were, you know, this is the first day that this new uh, season's FAA holdover time card came out. Now. We also have other cards uh, that are very specific to the type of fluid that you have been sprayed with. So there's probably about a dozen different chemical uh, types or manufacturers. And our um, company manuals always have uh, much more um, lenient holdover times when you have a very specific type of fluid uh, that they've used Uh, so you know the fa guideline is for like a generic fluid so those holdover times uh, are much less because it's a generic fluid so they just take the the lesser amount of time uh, overall but if you've had a like, say, Killfrost or ABC Plus or, or whatever the manufacturer is, those holdover times could be much longer because those fluid uh, chemical compositions could be much stronger. So we usually go with whatever the specific manufacturer's holdover time is, not the FA generic. So this was the first day that the card came out. We were in Chicago. We got sprayed down with both type one and type four because it was uh, snowing that day. And as we completed all of the procedures for de-icing and we're getting ready to push off the gate, we get a call from the cabin. And the flight attendant says, hey, uh, guys, there's a pilot back here. And he wants to make sure that you guys were using the new FAA holdover times that came out today. And hey, Captain and I looked at each other. Wait, what? There's a pilot back there that... Wh- wh- who does... Uh, Yeah, just let him know that, yes, we, we have those cards. We did follow the procedure. But who who the heck is this pilot? So we didn't think anything of it. We just you know, it just went on with our flight. And as we got to cruise altitude, now it was kind of like bugging us. Like, who is this guy? Is he one of ours or from another airline? So we ended up uh you know, we called back to the cabin and said, Hey, this pilot earlier that told you that we make sure we're using the holdover time card from the FA. Who is this guy? And our flight attendant goes, I don't know, let me check. So she Goes and comes back, and she calls us back and says, Oh, he's just a private pilot. (laughs) Oh, okay. So (laughs) that's fine. You know, the captain's like, Well, make sure he sticks his head in the cockpit so we can thank him, which was really not the intention. He just wanted to see who the heck this guy is. And, and, uh, he never did stick his head in the cockpit. He just kind of walked off the airplane with the rest of the passengers. So, uh, but, hey he was he was looking out, right? so uh, it kind of leads me to our next topic, which is a, a relatively serious thing that I read this morning, and uh, I wanted to talk to you about this uh, airplane that slid off the runway in Chicago. So this morning, I woke up and I read this article uh, first thing it catch my eye it was in all the headlines. About Chicago O'Hare and an aircraft that slid off the runway. Now this article you know kind of hit close to home being that off and on I was based out of Chicago for 13 years flying the very same airplane as a matter of fact I probably have a couple hundred hours in that very same airplane the n number of the airplane that slid off the runway. So uh, it really hit me close to home, so I I read the article closely and was very grateful to read that no one was hurt in the incident. Uh, From the Chicago Sun-Times, in an article written today, November eleventh, two 2019, by a David Stewart, Um, it's entitled The Plane... A plane slides off snowy runway at O'Hare Airport, and no one was injured. So I'll read a little bit uh, from the article in case you haven't uh, read it yet, and then we'll kind of talk about it. So the Chicago Fire Department responded about 7.45 a.m. and removed everyone from the plane, according to department spokesperson Larry Merritt. No one was injured, and the passengers were taken by bus to a gate, Merritt said. A video posted to social media shows a plane landing on a snowy runway and turning sideways before sliding off the runway as a wing hit the ground. Now, I've seen this video, and it was taken from a passenger sitting on the right side of the aircraft, right over the wing, on landing. And I also uh, looked at the track of this airplane. It had done... A go around uh, before committing to that landing so this was the second attempt at landing for whatever reason I can only assume it was due to weather that the captain or pilot flying whoever that was decided to make a go around and come back around and try it again and A little more from the article. The Embraer jet, inbound from Greensboro, North Carolina, had landed on runway one zero left about 7.45 a.m. and was attempting to exit to taxiway P-4, Papa 4, when the airplane's right main landing gear collapsed as the plane slid off the runway, an FAA spokesperson, Tony Molinaro, said in an email. He said the FAA is investigating. O'Hare recorded surface winds of 22 miles an hour with gusts in the 30s with light snow blowing about the time of the incident, according to the National Weather Service meteorologist. At least 1.6 inches of snow had fallen at the airport that morning. In a statement, American Airlines said that the jets, 38 passengers, and three crew members were deplaned safely. The flight was operated by Envoy Air, which is owned by American Airlines. Amid the snowstorm, airlines canceled more than 640 flights at O'Hare, according to the Department of Aviation of Chicago. A spokesperson for the CDA said the incident had a moderate impact in overall flight operations at the airport, but declined to comment further. In 2018, the FAA issued a warning letter to the City of Chicago over its handling of a series of weather-related mishaps at O'Hare between 2015 and 2016, including an instance in December of 2015 in which city crews allowed aircraft to continue to use Runway 10 left when pilots reported that conditions were deteriorating. And in the article, they actually have an article from March 11th of 2018 that's referenced uh, that was published in City Beat and uh, from the Chicago Sun-Times saying that uh, O'Hare's winter warning uh, went unheeded, and it shows a United Airlines 737 uh, after it slid off the runway. I actually remember that day uh, and that incident. So, you know, the article really opens up the door to uh, some interesting facts. Now, if you don't know what Chicago Airport looks like, or you're not an aviator uh, that flies in there on a regular basis, 10 Left is actually Chicago's longest runway. It has a published runway distance of 13,000 feet Now, if you look at the back of the airport diagram chart, for those of you who have instrument charts, the runway distance available is less than that. It's only 12,246 feet. But that really is irrelevant in this case, because still, 12,000 feet of runway is much longer than most runways at most airports at the United States. Of course, there are airports that have very long runways to accommodate the larger aircraft and the requirements for landing distance computations. But, you know, the crew is landing on the longest runway available at O'Hare. And the exit that they were trying to take, the article got wrong. It was not PAPA 4. They would never have made a right turn off the runway because it's the wrong way. Um, most of the time, the very first exit that you can actually take off of 10 left at O'Hare is a little bit further down the runway. It's the first high speed at November three. so that would have given them at least a couple more thousand feet to decelerate prior to leaving the runway. Uh, furthermore, you know, in those kind of conditions, I've landed in those kind of conditions many times. You never really take a high speed uh at more than a crawls pace. Uh any aviator or even any passenger that is a regular flyer in the uh the northwest or the east coast and has dealt with, you know, flying in snowstorms, it it's normal. And the aircraft, the, usually the captain is the one driving on the ground. And you know the aircraft is gonna come off that runway very, very slow. Uh, because the slippery conditions dictate that we take a little extra time, a little extra caution and precautions to ensure that we don't slide. So I am fully confident that the crew here had a situation to where they landed on ice, the aircraft got sideways, and I watched the video probably about six times now Uh, both from inside the cockpit and I saw, I'm sorry, from inside the cabin, and I saw the video uh, from outside of the aircraft uh, after the uh, passengers and crew were removed. And uh, I also looked at some of the pictures, and I'll post a link in the show notes to what I've found so far. I'm sure now there's going to be a dozen more News agencies covering this, if not more than that. so And pictures will continue to surface as they usually do in these kind of situations. But uh, you can see that the aircraft uh, arrested in the dirt or in the grass uh, over by PAPA 4, which is less than halfway down the runway. So about four or 5,000 feet uh, from where they would have landed, which... You know, even on dry conditions, you you would never exit there. Um, also, you know, they said that the 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 landing gear collapsed. Well, it did, but from the video that was taken from the passenger and then posted to social media, which is a whole other topic, which I'm not too fond of. But from that video, you know, you can see that the airplane got sideways. It ended up sliding. Uh, sideways, off into the dirt, and it wasn't until the main landing gear, the right main landing gear, uh, went off the runway into the soft uh, material, which would be the dirt or the grass, that it grabbed the side load, then uh, caused a collapse of the gear, and that's when the right wingtip made contact with the ground. And, you know, it it wasn't very violent of a impact to the dirt. However, you know, it should have never happened. It's very startling. And and a lot of the passenger comments from that video, uh, like one lady was uh, heard saying, oh, I guess we landed. I mean, it it really wasn't, I think, too bad. But I've been in a situation where you're sliding down the runway and you're kind of getting sideways. It's not anything to make light of. Um, So, you know, unfortunately it happened and, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that no one was injured in the event. So an incident like this happens. What's next for the flight crew? Now I've been very fortunate in my lifetime. I have had uh, probably a good dozen emergency declarations uh in the aircraft, and not once was it to the point where it was an actual accident and you know knock on wood I'm hoping that that maintains a, a true statement throughout the rest of my career. but you know the odds are that something may happen to me in the future uh and in the training that you receive uh, as early on as when you are learning to be a private pilot, uh, one of the things you have to know is definition of incident versus uh, definition of accident. And what's next? Well, in the airline world, anything like this happens. The For the crew, it, it's a monumental uh, task ahead. The first thing is to obviously uh, handle the situation, run through the emergency checklist for the particular situation. In this case, it was uh, something that, you know, there was no emergency declaration, there was no malfunction to the aircraft. So it's not like the crew had time to prepare for an emergency landing for a potential egress of the aircraft. So you know, this happened on landing and you know the only reaction they had is is post event now in a situation like this the first thing that you do is you secure the aircraft you shut down the engines you you know run through your emergency engine shutdown procedures uh, also you have to communicate with the cabin let them know uh are we going to evacuate or are we going to stay put is it safer to remain in the aircraft or is it safer to do an emergency evacuation uh, I'm only assuming here, but i would I would venture to think that you know they didn't evac immediately uh, that they waited until they could secure the airplane, uh, get the engine shut down um, try to uh, maintain some kind of power. They possibly turned on the APU so that the lighting in the cabin would remain on without the emergency lights uh, being the only source of uh, electricity. But I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, and you know, by then they'd be commu- communicating with ATC with the with the ARFF or ARF as we call them, airport rescue and firefighting. Uh, and you know, once they show up on scene, which is usually within a a matter of of seconds, if not a minute or so. Uh, Then there'd be some communication, which is, okay, is the aircraft secure? And uh, are we going to deplane immediately? Are we going to wait for a bus to come out? Because obviously it's, it's a snowstorm outside. Is it safer for the passengers to stay in the cockpit or in the cabin of the aircraft? Or is it safer for them to get out right away? And according to the scenario, from what I understand it, it was probably, in this scenario, best for them to stay in the aircraft until the firefighters and transportation arrived. Uh, and once that happened, you can see from some of the photos, there were some ladders that were brought out, the passengers. Uh, there's actually a video of the firefighter from inside the cabin of that flight, telling people, "Okay, leave all your belongings behind. Uh, we will pass them down to you once you egress the aircraft," which is great, you know. And everybody seems relatively calm. There wasn't a, a big uh, hustle to get off the aircraft. And usually, in an incident like this, the injury is going to happen not from the event, but from egressing the aircraft, from from trying to jump down from the airplane. Now the Embraer, uh, when all, you know, the landing gears and intact and you exit the aircraft, it is a good jump. I forget the exact amount of feet from the ground, but it's something like, uh, five and a half or six feet, uh, from the floor of the aircraft, uh, inside the cabin to the, to the pavement below. So, uh, you know, they use ladders and, and usually. Uh, you used the buddy system to help when one person gets down and then helps the next person down and whatnot and uh, so they egressed the aircraft, they got everybody on a bus, and they took them into the terminal uh, and and got their belongings to them so of course, what happens to the pilots and the flight crew so usually they 're the last ones to uh, get on the bus. They have to bring with them some paperwork the uh, the manual, the flight manual for the uh, the aircraft, the AML, we call it, the aircraft maintenance log. You want to bring with you the uh, electronic weight and balance information, or uh, all the pertinent information on how many passengers you had, uh, how many pounds of uh, baggage were you holding, and all that's on a weight and balance form or a weight and balance printout. Uh, and then the last thing is your clearance or in any kind of uh, material that was loaded onto your aircraft. Uh, not necessarily hazmat, but any material like dry ice or anything, or, or batteries, or a wheelchair that had battery in it, that was in cargo. You always want to have that in case there is an incident where there's a fire or a danger for a fire, and the firefighters at least know what they're dealing with, because that, those are uh, hazardous materials or fuel sources for a fire. So, you know, you have to bring that stuff with you and immediately you know, you'll have uh, members of management with the company if you're at a, a base uh, and then, of course, representatives from both the airport, the city, and they'll take you into a medical facility right away. First thing they do is do drug testing, alcohol testing, you name it. Um, it's all collected. Right away. And if there's injuries, of course, they're going to a hospital where they're going to, you know, check you out, but they're also going to do all those things uh, because all that has to be ruled out in the investigation. So it, it's kind of a big deal to have an event like this happen. The pilot's under extreme scrutiny. Uh, not to mention, you know, from all the coverage, uh, especially nowadays with, you know, everyone's got a film studio in their pocket with their phone, you know, all that's going to get out to the media. Um, and although it's not supposed to happen, a cockpit voice recorder is supposed to be protected, and the only person that can release that information would be the NTSB or FAA, which they're not really supposed to. But it seems to me every time I see or hear about an incident in the news that we then, oh, suddenly have audio recording from inside the cockpit. How the heck did that happen? It's not supposed to happen, but you know. So all that's going to be scrutinized, and I really hope that in the end of this particular investigation, that the pilots are cleared from any kind of uh, wrongdoing, because you know, from what I've seen in my experience uh, flying in and out of Chicago, seeing the video footage. Uh, the picture that I saw, in my personal opinion, I think they just simply landed in conditions that uh, were worse than advertised. Because if it was a braking action uh, nil, uh, or if the uh, snow and ice was on the runway and a previous aircraft reported deteriorating conditions, uh, they just would have went to an alternate airport or cho- chose a different runway out of Chicago, if that was an option, um, you know, cause why would you put yourself in that situation? So it leads me to our next segment. There we were. I love a good aviation story. I found that when telling a good tale from the flight line, it is best received if told in the first person. With that said, the following stories told within this podcast may or may not have happened to myself or to my guests, or in the manner in which they are told, if they happened at all. This is There We Were. You know, I have very fond memories flying the line at the regional carrier where I started my aviation career. And, you know, some of the events that have happened have been wonderful learning opportunities. One such event happened on my last month flying for the regional carrier. And I, at the time, was a Czech airman uh, on the Embraer aircraft, and I had a new hire with me. We were conducting IOE, which is Initial Operating Experience. So for those of you who don't know, uh, when you get hired on with an airline, you go through ground training and they call it first they call it indoctrination or indoc. And that's usually two or three days uh, and they talk about the procedures and policies of the company. They give you the HR rundown and uh, you know, about safety and harassment and all the all the goodies that you would get at any employer when you're new to the company. After that, uh, it's usually a few weeks of long-term ground training, and this has, you know, changed over the years. It used to be you would read a book, and I mean, we're talking a, a hefty manual, uh, first on the company procedures and then on the aircraft-specific procedures, from systems to limitations to uh you know de-icing everything. Uh you would go over it, uh you'd be in a, a classroom environment for, you know, usually about eight hours to nine hours a day, five days a week, and you're you're basically it's like a college class, right? So you're in there and you're you're learning the systems of the airplanes, the procedures, the checklists, the call-outs, all these things. And at the end of it, uh once you're you're past all the The testing and everything, then you do simulator training. Okay, so now you're studying a little bit less about knowledge of the aircraft and a little more about flows and procedures. So, you know, what do you do when you get to the airplane? Uh, You know, how do you power it up? How do you start the engines? What are you looking for? How do you recognize malfunctions that more commonly happen? During a particular phase of flight, and then how do you fly the airplane? Uh, you'll you'll be in this you know multi million dollar full motion simulator, and you're gonna it's gonna feel like the real airplane. And they even tell you, you know, treat this as if it's a real airplane. Don't treat it like it's a video game. Okay, it, it's a very big faux pas for the instructors in the simulator uh, world. So you know you get through all of this training, and when you're completed, you do a check ride, uh, and at the conclusion of that check ride, congratulations, you're now typed in that aircraft, and you get a new FAA license. So usually they send you home after that, and you could sit at home anywhere from a few days to even a few weeks before you get in the actual. Aircraft. Now, when they put you in an aircraft, you're not flying an empty airplane around. Your very first flight potentially could be with passengers in the back. So they don't just put you with any pilot at all or any captain at all. They put you with a training captain. Uh, Basically, someone that has been certified by the company and the FAA uh, that they can pretty much fly the airplane all by themselves. And they're Giving you instruction, not necessarily on how to fly the airplane, because you received all that in a simulator, and so you're really kind of getting a feel of the nuances of actually flying the actual airplane. Uh, you're you're going through the motions of what it's like on the flight line, basically, and so you're with a Ioe check airman, which is the position I had held at that time. I, it was a position that I absolutely loved doing. It was the best time that I had uh, thus far at the regional. And I, I really enjoyed talking to new people and and giving instruction and, and learning a lot, too, uh, from, you know, I'd say students. But, you know, really, they're, they're just coworkers, new hires that, you know, you're, you're taking under your wing and you're helping them out for a week or so. So this was the scenario. I was flying with a new guy, and on our first day, he did great. I mean everything. He was uh, very sharp, very attentive, and really it was just kind of going through the motions of everything. Day two, however, the weather had changed a little bit. I remember we we're flying Chicago to Moline. It's a very short flight. Uh, no snow on the ground. It was a cold winter day, and there was some rain showers in the area. And before we departed, uh, we kind of talked about the weather, and he was actually uh, prepared. He, he gave me some of his feedback that he had also checked, and, and everything seemed to be going pretty good. So we uh, took off out of Chicago O'Hare. And in route to Moline. And he had to perform both pilot flying and pilot monitoring duties. So uh, we usually would switch off every other flight. So he had flown the previous flight we just did, landed in Chicago. Everything was, was great. And then we switched off. Now, I was the one flying from Chicago to Moline uh, because... In IOE, you have to uh, have time both as the pilot flying and as the pilot monitoring and doing all the duties you're supposed to do when you're pilot monitoring a non-flying pilot. So this was the scenario. And as we got a little closer to the airport, uh, we discussed the weather and what was going on. The conditions were that there was rain beginning and ending in the area at the airport. Uh, the temperature was right at freezing. The runway condition was a braking action poor to good. So uh, they were de icing the runway or plowing it or putting down a chemical de icing uh, fluid as well. And the previous aircraft had landed about 30 minutes prior. It was a CRJ. And they reported the braking action was fair to poor. So it, it, a little bit of conflicting information, but they were chemically treating the runway, so a vehicle probably thought, okay, well, it's actually getting better. It's close to good. And uh, so I said, well, hey, let's uh, have you land this one. So he briefed, the approach, he briefed the conditions, the event that would cause us to go around or or to abort the landing and, and go around and try again. So he was very attentive to what he needed to do. So I was very confident that this was all gonna work out pretty good. Well, you know, so I handed him over the aircraft. Now he was in control of the airplane and I was the pilot monitoring at that point forward. We started our descent. And as we got closer, they handed us off to the tower controller, and I asked them, you know, do you have a runway condition report? And they basically repeated the uh, information that was on the ATIS, or the uh, Automated Terminal Information System, uh, over the radio, which tells you the weather conditions at the airport. It's required that we check that prior to even conducting an approach to make sure that we have all the legalities covered in terms of... Uh, weather conditions, runway conditions, things like that. So he continued on with the approach and I told him, I said, listen, since you're still pretty new on the airplane, if I see something that looks kind of funny, I'm just going to go ahead and take over the aircraft and say my aircraft at that point, uh, I'll either control the aircraft or, uh, fly the airplane for a go around. Okay. So don't worry about it. It's not because, uh, Anything that you're doing, I just, I see something and we really don't have time at that point for me to talk you through it. If I can talk you through it, then we'll just continue and do that. So, you know, IOE instruction is happening, real time. He comes in, briefs everything perfectly, makes a beautiful approach. And just as he's touching down, uh, I noticed that the crosswind component that was advertised was not as strong as what we were actually getting uh, information in the cockpit. So we had about a 15-knot crosswind, which is just about at the limit for a runway condition that had ice on the runway. Uh, and he touched down, and just as the mains touched down, the nose started to come down right on centerline, looking great. And as the nose touched down, I noticed that the airplane was kind of just sliding a little bit where the nose was starting to turn into the wind, which is what's called weather vading. All right. It should not happen. And usually it happens with strong crosswinds with not enough uh, wind correction, which is uh, rudder and aileron correction for the crosswind condition, or... If you're landing in an icing condition, and there's a crosswind, the traction on the main uh, landing gear is not there, and the airplane will kind of turn sideways, which is what was happening. So I recognized it immediately. I said, "My aircraft," and I put full aileron deflection and crossing rudder deflection to do my best to keep center line. Because at that point, we are we were landed and relatively committed. We couldn't execute a go-around at that point. We had the reversers were out already and we were done. Right. So fortunately the aircraft got straight again. And we never were off by more than about five degrees uh, direction. And the airplane stayed on the center line. And as it slowed The anti-skid or anti-locking system of the brakes that was working at that point, kind of like ABS in your car, uh, after a a certain miles per hour on the main landing gear, those get cut out. And here I was standing on the brakes, and we're just slowly going down the runway at about 20-25 miles an hour, and the airplane's not stopping. It is just... So we're just along for the ride at that point. And so now I get on the radio and tell the tower, okay, braking action nil. Uh, we're unable to stop at this point. And the tower controller says, okay, we'll just take it to the end. We dropped some salt and sand at the end, and you should be able to turn off. If you require any assistance, let us know. And I was like, okay. So I let off the brakes, and you know the airplane started to kind of pick up the speed a little bit, so, you know, I did something that, in my opinion, was the best thing I could do. Is I, I popped the reversers, the thrust reversers, out at low speed, which, you know, you can only use those to prevent the aircraft from going off the runway at low speed. Below eighty knots, uh, our company procedures were they had to be uh, stowed. So, so we, we, I pulled the the buckets out. I used the thrust reversers at idle at significantly slowed the aircraft to a crawl and I tried the brakes again to see if I can get the airplane stopped and nothing the the brakes were stopped they were locked but we were sliding it was we were on a sheet of ice black ice uh, that was not reported and so I told the controller all right midfield is braking action nil you know and so put the reversers away I stowed them again and we just kind of slowly crawled forward, and I was kind of pumping the brakes to see if I could get any traction, and nothing. The aircraft just kept going. We ended up traveling the full length of the runway, right on the center line, maintaining the uh, crosswind correction the whole way. And as we got to the end, uh, once we reached the sanded area of the runway, which is the last thousand feet, the airplane came to a stop. and I said, okay, well uh, you should be able to exit the runway and taxi back because we've treated that end of the field. I said, okay, we'll we'll try it, but if I start to slide I may need to have a tug come out and get me. And they said, that's fine. So we were able to turn off the runway at a crawl and as we're on this parallel taxiway to head back to the terminal, Uh, about every 50 feet or so, I would tap on the brakes to see if I had traction. And at that particular moment, moving at about two miles an hour, just crawling and crawling, uh, there were occasions where I would have traction, and then there were occasions where I didn't have any traction. So I would continuously make reports to the the tower controller is saying, hey, okay, this area between this taxiway and this taxiway braking action is poor. In this area, it's nil. And we were able to make it all the way to the ramp area uh, without any incident. We stayed on center line. I look over, and my poor new hire, FO, was just like white-knuckling it going, oh, my goodness. It took us literally 20 minutes to travel about 5,000 feet, you know, which should take about five. but. Because we were going so slow, being so cautious, I even made a PA telling the passengers, you know, I, we're moving very slowly because, you know, we have uh, very slippery conditions out here. And when we got to the ramp, they uh, they told us, yeah, uh, give way to the CRJ, he's taxiing out to the runway. And I was like, unable, uh, we're kind of sliding right now. And, you know, once we get to the ramp, I can see that they've dropped some some salt down. We'll, we'll try it again, but uh, I, I can't give way to anyone right now. And they're like, understood. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, this guy's getting ready to take off. I've been slipping and sliding all over the place over here. Really? And sure enough, they went to the end of the runway and we got to the ramp area where they had treated it and dropped just a ton of salt and sand down. And we were able to park the airplane uh, with no further incident. I ended up calling the dispatcher and saying, hey, man, this, this, uh, this airport is bad. And they said, yeah, we know. We, we, we understood the, what happened. And we're just going to go ahead and cancel all the flights the rest of the day. So you can tell the crew that's taking the plane out to just turn around, go back to the hotel with you. And we'll, we'll have crew scheduling call them. So what had happened was the airport, it was raining. and The rain stopped. They chemically treated the runway with some de-icing, anti-icing type fluid. And the CRJ from another carrier had come in and landed. And they reported breaking action uh, uh, fair to poor. Okay, And they taxied back to the gate. And so uh, the city went out again and retreated the runway. And we were still... Uh, about 50 miles out at that time so by the time we got to the airport uh, the vehicles that treated the runway vacated the airport but then it started to rain again and it was just above freezing at that time so the rain washed away all of that chemical treated runway and then it stopped raining and the temperature dropped a few degrees to below freezing so all of that rain that washed away the chemically treated anti-ice runway froze and created a black ice situation. Now, this was, you know, unknown to the tower controller, it was unknown to the city operator, and it was unknown to us. We would have never have uh, finished up with the approach. We would have just went around and uh, probably headed back to Chicago because we had Chicago as our alternate anyway. So, you know, a very scary situation talk about a pucker factor of at least 10 i had never been you know landing an aircraft uh, with a sideways moment like that and you know you can immediately recognize that it's different from when you land on a dry runway with a crosswind it's it's different there's traction you can feel it under your your seat but in this situation it was just like no traction. It was, it was like sitting in a chair in an ice skating rink, and you got pushed sideways. You just you start to spin. So, you know, the incident happened. Thankfully, uh, the airplane stayed on the runway. And, you know, I give a good job to my, my FO who, who learned a lot that day uh, on IOE, on his second day. Of IOE, learned a lot. And, you know, we talked about it, debriefed about it, um, not just with him, but with the other flight crew. And we told them what happened. And, and and that's what we do. We talk about these things that happen and we learn from each other. Because if you find yourself in a situation and you go, oh, you know, that uh, Tony guy, he, he had a situation where it was right at freezing and it, they had iced runway and then it rained and then it stopped raining five minutes before they landed uh, that could be a recipe for disaster so my hat's off to you know the crew that landed in chicago because those situations happen and nine out of ten you know you were put in that situation inadvertently you didn't know nobody knew it just the weather is the weather um And I really hope that everything works out okay for that crew. they get back in the air uh, as soon as possible, as soon as they're cleared. And, uh, you know, it could have happened to anyone. It could have happened to me. So next month I have something coming up with training. It's called recurrent training and I wanted to talk just a little bit about that. So re- recurrent training is something that every aviator at an airline or charter uh, operator has to go through. The FAA requires that you know we we go through emergency procedures, standard procedures periodically. And whether that's in an effort to remain current or in an effort to go through procedural changes. Either way, every airline has a program for training that they have to go through. At Legacy Airlines, we have a nine-month cycle, meaning every nine months, you get flown back to the training facility, and you go through recurrent training. Now, for us, that is usually a three-day event, not including travel. So day one is usually a relatively long day filled with ground-based training. Uh, there are no you know, at-home training uh, material to go over like some airlines do. Uh, everything is done pretty much. Uh, at the schoolhouse. So we go through our ground training and we cover everything from uh, emergency equipment to uh, aircraft slides and doors and all the things that we have to at least manipulate uh, to be current in how to use that stuff. Uh, Then we go through everything from any changes that has happened in our procedures we talk about aircraft systems and limitations and all kinds of things at the end of the day they do an assessment you know uh pretty much everyone by that point at the end of the day can can pass the assessment with no problem and then we come back on day two for some simulator work now that also includes a a lengthy uh pre-event briefing where you discuss uh, the maneuvers you're going to do the procedures that you're going to do in the simulator with a sim instructor and usually you're partnered up with uh, a captain or a first officer depending on what you are you'll you'll get paired up and if there's not one available they'll just take another check airman or sim instructor and put them in the other seat to assist you Uh, so You know, in the simulator, you'll go through everything from what they call maneuvers validation. uh, Well, they'll have you do uh, stall recovery and, uh, you know, turns, holds, that kind of thing. Uh, And they'll also have you do go rounds and landings and uh, aborted takeoffs, aborted landings. I mean, you name it, engine fire, that kind of stuff like that. So, all the emergency procedures that pilots are required to be proficient in, they're, obviously, they're not going to do it in the airplane. They're going to do it in a simulator. And we work on cycles. So, uh, last year, I went through what they call an R9, or the, the nine-month cycle. Now, this year, uh, I'm going to have to go through what they call R18, which is an 18th month cycle. So, whatever we didn't cover in the first nine month cycle, we're going to cover in the second nine month cycle. And it's the same thing ground school one day, simulator for two days. Now, the 18th month cycle is a little bit more in depth with maneuvers. So, I'm going to be doing a lot of go arounds and aborted takeoff, aborted landing, single engine approaches, you know, a second stage engine failure, all these technical things. But at the end of it, I should then be proficient in the call-outs, the reaction, the procedures, the profiles, all the things that we're trained to do. So that in the event an emergency happens on the flight line, in the actual aircraft, there is no thinking about it. You just, you react uh, initially, you react kind of instinctually to do your memory items, your memory flows, and then work through the problem with the appropriate uh, emergency checklist, checklist, whatever it is you're doing, the quick reference uh, procedure, and you know how to do it because you've done it before. And because you've done it before, you recognize what you should be doing both pilots even if you've never flown with the other individual before you're both trained in identical fashion and you're both expected to respond in an identical fashion to operate with the standard operating procedures so that's what's coming up Uh, i'm going to start studying for that now because i've got about uh, 30 days before i have to head out and of course, there are plenty of of reference material uh, to go through uh, to make sure that I have everything that uh, I'm supposed to know, you know, in the back of my mind so that when I go through it, uh, I'm at least uh, have polished off the cobwebs there on some of those, some of those procedures that I'm supposed to know uh, just off the top of my head. And so it's a little nerve wracking. Uh it depends on your carrier uh beginning of your career when you're at a, a regional airline or if you're at a uh a small charter uh place it, the charter airline or the charter operators they're going to contract out their training 9 out of 10 so you'll go to some location like flight safety or something like that and they'll fly you out to one of these locations that has simulator training and they'll they'll give you the ground school and the simulator training by a third party, because you know charter operators don't make the the millions of dollars every quarter, and they can afford to have their own simulators, like the major airlines do. So you know they contract out, but uh, at a mainline uh, and even major airline carriers, they always have their own training facility. It just it makes more sense. And uh, at Legacy Airlines, they have a campus that is dedicated just to the flight training department. And it is huge. It's got multiple buildings, and in each building they have dozens of these uh, full-motion simulators for all types of aircraft fleet. Uh, And, I mean, it's an amazing spectacle that the public usually doesn't get a chance to see. You know, these 10-plus million-dollar simulators that are... Uh, the box, we call it, you know, the uh, on hydraulics, you know, 20 feet in the air, uh, bouncing around all over the place. On the inside, high-definition projections in a full-scale mock-up of the uh, air, aircraft type that that simulator is. And it is like flying the real thing, you know? You have a an area where the guy, the instructor guy or gal will be in the back and they're controlling all the touchscreen uh, monitors to, you know, give you the particular scenario. And it it can be daunting the first few times that you're in a sim. It's just you look around and, you know, the motion kind of plays with your senses a little bit. So even if you're not, the type of person to get motion sickness or seasickness like myself. I, I could be on a boat in high seas, no problem. I won't get sick, but in the simulator, uh, because it's messing with your equilibrium and your senses, uh, it, it can be, it can be kind of nauseous. <laughs> you can be nauseous by the end of it. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a pretty in-depth training that all pilots have to go through, especially airline pilots, and you know, depending on your carrier, it'll be different uh, cycles, different time frames on your cycles. But it is definitely a place where you have to concentrate. And the family members of of airline pilots know this very well. It's like, oh, training next month, so time to study, and so that takes away time from from family because you're you're not going to be studying while you're flying along. You're studying at home or at the hotel and, and your free time. So uh, and. A very wise pilot told me many years ago, it is always better to be overprepared and underwhelmed than the other way around. So I'm very excited about this next segment. It's a new segment to Squawk Ident. Uh, but to understand that Squawk Ident was created... Uh, by me, in an effort to chronicle the journey, the struggles, all the things I've gone through uh, as an aviator, as a pilot. Um, you know, I, for years, for years, I was approached by friends and family and asked all these questions about about flying, about being a, a pilot, an airline pilot, and. You know, most of the time, like, oh, wow, you you must be really rich and, you know, make a lot of money, and you're probably home all the time, and, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Most of the stereotypes are just plain wrong, and so that's really why I started this, to kind of chronicle the journey, uh, get the information out there, and I've been having an absolute blast you know, recording, editing, producing, marketing, and doing all the things necessary to run a successful podcast. Well, to understand my journey, we need to kind of understand who Aviator Tony is. And as this podcast continues to grow and the listenership continues to grow, I will be releasing more and more detail about who I am and how I got to this place. In in my life, so one thing that I'm going to go ahead and get out there today is that I come from a relatively unique background. Uh, my parents were immigrants to this country from uh, Italy via Canada and then to California. So I grew up in Northern California. We we moved out here when I was very young, and I had a, a wonderful. Experienced growing up, uh, total suburban kid, you know, right out of freaking ET, right? Spielberg hit the nail on the head with the suburban kids on the BMX bikes, you know, minus the alien, but but that was me. And growing up, wanting to be a pilot, you know, making model airplanes, hanging them in my room with fishing wire, and you know, my my buddies had posters on their their bedroom walls as teenagers. Of everything from like ACDC and you know Van Halen to uh, you know, Cindy Crawford posters and and Baywatch posters. I had freaking F four Phantom, SR seventy one poster, you know the F fifteen. You name it. It was on my wall. It, everything was airplanes, airplane books, airplane posters, airplane models, and I, you know. That, that was my dream. And as I mentioned in my very first episode, uh, it wasn't something that my parents really thought that I would seriously pursue, because they felt that it was a dangerous profession and didn't know much about it, and they'd rather have their son planted with both feet on the ground. Totally understandable, right? So here I am, uh, all these years later, and in my mid-40s, and here I am at the tip of the uh, pyramid, but in the process to get here, I you know went to high school, went to a community college, uh, had a uh, associate's degree in social sciences and photography and that led to a transfer to a university in the San Francisco area, uh, and I got a degree in film production and Had a blast doing it. Met some great people. uh, Learned the technical and artistic side of producing film. And, you know, my goal was to become a cinematographer. And as life would have it, uh, you know, I worked throughout my college years. And when I got to Southern California... uh, trying to find work in the industry and maintaining uh, a job, which was my box retailer job. Uh, they kept offering me positions that led into management with great money. And when you're in your 20s and you see the money rolling in and the potential for it to rolling in, you know, you kind of put aside your, your dream to, to do something that you were interested in but not really passionate about. And that led, uh, for a transition to move to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was in my twenties and was engaged, bought a house, a couple cars, you know, restored a couple cars and, you know, restored the house and, and did a makeover on that. And, you know, so kept busy and that's when I got into aviation, that discovery flight that my wife had purchased for me, uh, had introduced me to a, an expat Italian who came to, to build time and be a flight instructor, and that led me to a career following what I was passionate about. Not just a dream, but a dream that I was passionate about. So here I am, uh, all these years later, And 20 years down the road, flying for a mainline carrier and getting to talk about my passions. Well, it's only natural that I also talk about another passion of mine or something that I absolutely love, which is film. So every week, I'm going to do my best when it's fitting to talk about a film in aviation. And this week, I chose to talk about... An old black and white that I saw, wow, about two decades ago. And it is a, a really great, cheesy, but it, telling film. Kind of in that era of Casablanca and that whole mystique of airmail flying. As a matter of fact, this film is based on how airmail Got started, and it's entitled "Only Angels Have Wings." Now, if you're a film student, you're going to study a very prolific director, Howard Hawks, and he did these old black and whites, uh, this you know drama, you know love interest, action-packed films from the 1930s and 40s. And, you know, to stay in line with that, Only Angels Have Wings was made in 1939. Classified as a drama slash action movie, two hours in length, uh, directed by Howard Hawks, screenplay by Jules Firthman. And the production company was Columbia Pictures. It had an all star cast Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, Rita Hayworth. Thomas Mitchell and many more. This film has everything from the little uh, model airplane on a string, you know, uh, and it's it's, it's a, they're taking pictures of that on models. Um, Rotten Tomatoes gives it one hundred percent. IMDb gives it seven point seven out of ten, and Slant Magazine gives it a four out of four. You've probably never heard of this film, but. You know, the Academy Award it was uh, nominated, uh, this film, for Best Visual Effects. And for a 1930s film, it, pretty impressive. Uh, the, they actually were nominated for Best Cinematography as well, uh, along with uh, a couple other classifications, uh, Black and White uh, film. So I'll give you a quick uh, synopsis of the movie without trying to spoil anything for you because highly recommended has been one of my favorite aviation films for a very long time. Can you get out of there with that extra weight? Well, I I got a little help from the wind. I'll go right off the ledge and use the canyon to pick up flying speed. Let me know if you make it. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, created in 1939 American drama film Uh, directed by Howard Hawks, starring Cary Grant and Gene Arthur. And it's based on a story written by Hawks. Uh, The film also marked the first significant role in a major film for Rita Hayworth. A lot of one-liners in this movie, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, It was based on a number of real incidents witnessed by Hawks. And although airmail... In 1932, the film Night Flight 1933, Ceiling Zero 1936, all great films, also directed by Hawk, uh, and uh, Flight from Glory in 1937. They all have kind of similar storylines, but this particular film, uh, it must be, you know, the charisma of Cary Grant, one of the great black and white uh, early film uh, actors, in, in my opinion. Uh, really. To turn the table for this film. So uh, the character, uh, Jeff Carter, is a head pilot and manager of Baranka Airways, a small, barely uh, solvent company owned by Dutchie uh, Van Ruther, a, uh, a Dutch national that uh, settled down in the uh, fictional town of Branca. So the whole film is based on this relationship between uh, the the main character of uh, Jeff, uh, played by Cary Grant, the chief pilot of this airline that's picking up contracts from the U.S. Postal Service, where they have to fly every day. But of course, Airplanes at the time didn't have the fancy weather navigation equipment as airplanes do today, so it was a lot of uh, what we call scud running, uh, you know, in instrument conditions. Very dangerous uh, back in those days, and the film, the screenplay, was very realistic to how many incidences or crashes there were from pilots that felt forced to fly in conditions that were less than ideal, simply because they had a contract to get the mail out. And the film is based on this premise, but of course, it's also a love story. Because in the 1930s, you had to have a good love interest, a good romantic uh, storyline to capture their their, uh, viewers. And so the situation in the film, I'm not going to dive too much into it, but let's just say it's a a, a lucrative uh government contract that this airline uh, small airline has, and the pilots, some of them are lost uh, because of crashes, and the special effects are you know some of the best of the 1930s. actually, this film made over a million dollars in the box office, which we're talking 1930s currency. That's amazing. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, you know, I absolutely love this film. I can get it into the detail of the production and, you know, the aircraft used. Let's just say uh, Hamilton... A metal plane, a Ford tri-motor, and a Travel Air 6000 single engine monoplane uh, are some of the airplanes you're going to see in here. And just some of the cheesiness that the whole family can enjoy. So if you're interested in watching a great classic, Only Angels Have Wings. be that wraps up the show. Uh, it, it's gone over again. You know, I, I don't know, maybe an hour format is just not enough. Uh, but hey, thank you so much for listening. I, as mentioned before, have had an absolute blast, uh, recording, producing, uh, Squawk Eye And if it wasn't for all the, the feedback and the support that I've received, uh, over the, these past few weeks, uh, I don't know if this would have kept going, but it has been an honor to speak with you today about this. I want to remind our listeners that uh, go to the website, uh, create the website so that it can be a one-stop shop so you can uh, listen to the episodes from there. There's uh, direct links there to listen and download the podcast. Uh, and I encourage you to download uh, if you're listening while you're flying, commuting, driving, Whatever you're doing, Uh, if you don't have a Wi-Fi connection, you can download and listen later. Uh, You can also shop if you're so inclined to pick up a hat or a luggage tag or t T-shirt with the uh, Squawk Ident uh, gear. It's all there in the Pilot Shop. And uh, also, your generous contributions to the show can help. Uh, I just picked up a new piece of equipment. Uh, that it's going to allow me to do some in-studio guest appearances with independent microphones that will improve the sound quality of the podcast, the sound quality of my interviews. Of uh, course, equipment does cost a lot of fucking money, right? So so I'm going to reach out to you today and say, please help by contributing to the Squawk I Dem podcast. You can do a one-time donation uh, through the website uh, patreon's coming up uh probably in the next few weeks i'll get an account going for all those that would like to contribute through patreon uh, or through spotify if you listen via spotify there is a place there to sponsor the show and you can do a uh, one-time or monthly uh contribution anywhere from 99 cents and up and that all will be in turn turned into equipment funding for Squawk Ident uh, also if you are on social media be sure to follow us like and subscribe to, uh, either on Facebook or on Instagram and now even on Twitter now that was a tough one I really don't like Twitter but uh, but uh, I figured, hey, you know, might as well get the, uh, the podcast out there. So we are now on Twitter. The Twitter hander is uh, Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident podcast. Also, some great news. Just last night, I found out that iHeartRadio has picked up Squawk Ident. So you can now listen on iHeartRadio. Good luck getting alexa to recognize the words squawk ident i had a little bit of trouble with that too however uh, i was able to find it on the computer and uh i've got to figure out how alexa can understand a squawk ident podcast but uh i'd love your feedback uh any show notes would be greatly appreciated for those of you that reached out with your critiques absolutely appreciate them i've done my best to incorporate everything i could to make this episode and the future episodes even better so again thank you for listening this has been a really wonderful show and i would like to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator keep the dirty side down be safe and take care of each other